You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell. I'm an anchor at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Today, we have another edition of Across the Aisle. We are speaking with Republican Congressman John Curtis of Utah and Democratic Congresswoman Annie Custer of New Hampshire. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to be with you. Yes. Hello, Annie. Hi, John. Good to be with you. I'm happy to have you both here. You guys are both co-chairs of the Ski and Snowboard Caucus. And the reason we are talking today is because um, there are a lot of changes and climate impacts to uh, winter sports. Um, And I thought that it was a fascinating thing that you both even have a ski and snowboard caucus on Capitol Hill. So Congressman, um, actually, let me start with Congresswoman uh, Custer. You guys are on opposite sides of the country. Um, You're from New Hampshire. Congressman Curtis is from Utah. uh, But you are co-chairing this caucus together. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about it and why you both decided to, to form this? Sure. So when I first came to Congress, I resurrected what had been a bipartisan ski and snowboard caucus. And then when John came to Congress and we had a chance to meet uh, over climate discussions, actually, I asked him to come on as the Republican co-chair, and I'm glad I did. So skiing is a big part of my district, a rural district in New Hampshire. It's a half billion dollar industry in New Hampshire. I have dozens of ski areas and um, we have over 2 million visitors a year. Um, I'm sure that John's gonna brag on the Utah powder, but we've had over 200 inches of snow. is a lot in New Hampshire. I grew up in the ski industry and uh, it's a big part of my life and our family's life. And so it's great to have that, to find common ground uh, with my Republican counterpart. Congressman Curtis, why did you decide to join? Well, what does nobody, this caucus do? Yeah, nobody can tell uh, Representative Custer no. <laughs> and truth, she's She's just a delight to work with. And uh, much like her district, uh, people who are familiar with the resorts in Utah will relate to names like Deer Valley and Park City and Alta and Solitude and Snowbird and Sundance. Uh, these are all uh, resorts in my district. And um, I'll tell you, um, if there's a good bipartisan issue, this should be it. And sometimes we get off track a little bit talking about climate from a partisan perspective. And this is a good way to kind of pull us all into the same sheet and and find some common principles that we can all agree on. So, Representative Curtis, let's just talk about what's happening out west uh, weather-wise. There is an abundance of snow this season. Um, California has a tremendous, got a tremendous amount of snow. They might keep ski resorts open until June. Um, Utah and your state, uh, I'm very jealous, but I have many friends who have been skiing in uh, Park City and Deer Valley um, the past few months. Um, And Colorado has had a great season too. Do you expect, is this the new norm? Well, so uh, up until this fall, we were in what's called a mega drought, the state's longest, driest uh, period in history. 
And um, I, I think the Utahns are very well aware that while we're very well, we're grateful for this water, we don't know if this is an anomaly or if it's a new trend. And I think it would be wise to to still stay in our water conservation mode and uh, doing all that we can to, to, to make sure that we're being good stewards of these wonderful resources that we have. And Rep Custer on the East Coast, it's been, you said that you, there's been lots of snow. The snow came late this year. Um, in the Mid-Atlantic, there's been hardly any snow um, in the ski resorts uh, around Maryland, Southern Pennsylvania, Western Maryland. Um, is, this, is this a climate phenomenon as well? You have two disparate impacts of what's happening on the East Coast and the West Coast when it comes to winter weather. Well, I think one thing we're all learning about climate change, I like to stick with that word change because it seems to be constantly changing now. We're having much more dramatic weather events. If you look to the tornadoes in the south and the incredible destruction, as John mentioned, drought. But we also, what we've noticed in the northeast is uh, when these weather events happen, we tend to get a lot more moisture in over a short period of time. I also want to mention about the change in the temperature because the ski area that I'm familiar with where I go with my family, Wildcat Mountain in Pinkham Notch, right across from Mount Washington, did get an abundant year of snow. But many of our ski areas in New Hampshire, they were just above the freezing temperature and they got those same storms with rain, which can be devastating for the ski industry. Um, we've got some incredible research in New Hampshire. Uh, we've studied the climate and the environment over a 50 year period and compared that data to um, snowmaking data and the records from the ski industry. And we've lost at least eight days of prime uh, snowmaking weather where the temperature is sufficiently cold and we have enough moisture um, to be able to create uh, artificial snow, which is really what is keeping the ski industry going in the east. So I think from year to year, it may be di difficult to see a trend, but over time, our winters are definitely getting warmer um, and many instances of not having sufficient snow uh, to be able to open the ski areas for the length of the ski season that certainly people are used to. Uh, you mentioned uh, snowmaking, artificial snow, Congresswoman Custer. Um, where we ski with my family since I've been on the East Coast is in Vermont at Sugarbush, and it's been really inconsistent when we go in December. Sometimes there's tons of snow and sometimes it's 60 degrees, um, not even enough to make snow. Can you talk about the climate impact of making snow? Is there one? Well, it's an interesting question and, and something that we have to consider. Um, snowmaking can be uh, energy intensive. And we, um, in New Hampshire, we're certainly looking for ways to reduce carbon pollution 
so that we will have less impact uh, with this climate change going forward. And one of the things that John and I have come together on, he's the leader of the uh, Conservative Climate Caucus, is recognizing that connection between carbon pollution and what's happening in, in our environment and in our um, climate. Uh, what we've done is to try to increase clean energy sources. And so to the extent that our electricity is made with clean energy, um, we can have less impact from the snowmaking uh, on carbon pollution. Representative Curtis and I grew up out west and we grew up skiing in southern Utah. Um, high mountains, lots of snow. Um, so it's really great. But can you talk about, you know, like we mentioned, the West is having a great season, um, but there's many studies that have said, that have affirmed and reaffirmed that the seasons are, in fact, there's a trend that they are getting shorter um, because of the warming climate. Can you talk about that and the economic impact that has on winter recreation locations and resorts and winter sports? Well, I tell you, you know, for, for most Utahns, if, uh, if you want to get them interested in a conversation about how we be good stewards over this earth and how we protect from some of the things that we're talking about today, you can point uh, not just to the, the ski season, but you can point to forest fires. Uh, there's been a lot of press lately about our Great Salt Lake that, that is drying up. Um, and there, there's a number of ways that our environment impacts us. Um, and I think Utahns um, want to, to be very in tune with these issues and want to understand the causes and what they can do about it. And uh, there, I think an innate desire in all of us to be good stewards over these resources. And I like to say, leave the earth better than we found it. I was taught that as a Boy Scout. That's not a political issue. That's, a, that's I think, an innate desire in every human being. And I, I think sometimes appealing to that um, is, is more productive than some of our other ways that we approach it. And Representative Custer, can you talk about what you're hearing from ski resorts in, in New Hampshire? Owners, yep. skiers? And, and in Utah, uh, John and I had a chance to meet with the ski Utah people together earlier this season. Um, but certainly, I have met just recently with the Ski New Hampshire resorts. Um, they're very concerned about the shortened season. You mentioned December. Uh, often in the ski industry, the Christmas week is a substantial part of their budget and their profit margin at the end of the year. And so they want to make sure that they have a reliable product, if you will, that they have snow on the trails. If it's natural snow, that's great. If it's artificial snow, um, they can use grooming and other techniques to give skiers and snowboarders a good experience. And that's really ultimately their goal. And so I think uh, we're seeing a lot of concern. John and I have had Zoom meetings with the ski industry writ large across the country. And a couple of the issues that they brought up was the impact on climate, um, immigration is also an issue that they're concerned about. They have some workforce issues. And of course, housing in these mountain communities is a big issue. Affordable housing for the people working at the ski areas and for the guests that come to visit. Hmm. 
That's interesting. Representative Curtis, um, what are some of the solutions? You know, we mentioned there's a climate issue, there's an economic impact, as Representative Custer said, there's, you know, a workforce impact and also a housing impact um, with uh, a lot of these ski places. So what are some of the solutions um, about around those and especially revolving climate? So this is what I think is is very important. Um, I think some people get scared away from the climate dialogue because they're told that we we have to have unaffordable energy prices and, and energy sources that are not reliable. But I think when we get our best minds together, what you'll see is we can have um, energy independence, we can have affordable low prices, and we can reduce emissions. And this is why it's so important for Republicans and Democrats to be on the same page and pulling together. I, I think um, it's a false narrative to say, look, in the, just to be clean, we've got to give up affordable energy prices. Uh, I don't believe that's true. And I think working together, we can make substantial improvement. And I think we have made a lot of improvement with, with a lot of work uh, still ahead of us. And I think it's also um, a false choice to just depend on Washington, D.C. to solve all of this. You know, in Utah, the water that goes into the Great Salt Lake is impacted by everybody and, and being conscious of how we're using our water, everything from our ag community to, to our recreation community. And it's, it's really an all hands on deck uh, issue. And I, uh, it's, I think it's important not just to, to look to Washington to solve this, but remember state, local government, and even individuals play a, a big role. And Representative Curtis, you mentioned um, not necessarily a Republican and Democrat thing, but politically speaking, um, the way that the climate debate has unfolded is that you know, I'm generalizing and I'm also simplifying here, but that uh, Republicans um, have sometimes turned away from climate issues. Um, is there any, do you sense that there is a shift or anything that your party is willing to move forward on regarding climate? Today, for example, actually, let me ask, let me just add on to that there today, the, this week, the House is voting on H.R. 1, an energy bill. Are there any climate solutions in that bill? Absolutely. It's um, uh, I'll just point out probably the one that's the, the most impactful, and that's permitting reform. Um, this is a, a great cross section for Republicans and Democrats. Uh, right now, it, it doesn't matter if you're trying to permit a solar farm, a wind farm, or a pipeline, you can't get it done. And uh, a nuclear plant, geothermal, all of these uh, innovations just can't get permitted. And I think uh, a, a great place for Republicans and Democrats to come together is on permitting reform uh, that would in, uh, kind of unleash a clean energy future uh, that, I, that I think is very, very exciting. And quite frankly, without permitting reform, I don't think there's anybody that will acknowledge that we can meet our, our goals for energy and for climate I'd also like to point out that uh, while it is true that there has been some um, pretty strong uh, partisan rhetoric on this issue, and while it's true that uh, many Republicans have, have become very good at saying what we don't like and not what we do like, uh, I'd also like to point out things like the Clean Energy Act of 2020, a, a substantial piece of legislation that was bipartisan, reducing hydrofluorocarbons by 85%. It's 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 huge achievement. I think one of the problems with the environmental movement is, is too often we don't stop and celebrate our successes. We, we tend to find and point out our differences rather than our similarities. 
And that's why I love working with Representative Custer so much is, you know what, there's certainly things that we're going to find we disagree on, but we can find a, a, a whole room full of things that we agree on that we can move forward. And I think the two of us represent far more of our colleagues than the, the typical social media post would have you believe. And I, 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 she's not in her head. And I think we would both agree that, you know, we're, we wake up and we're surrounded by hundreds of our colleagues on the right and the left who, who, who want to work together and do the right thing. It doesn't always make the news. And so this is a really good time for me to give a shout out to my good colleagues on the right and on the left who do work together, who find uh, common areas uh, where we can plow forward and who do actually have quite a bit of success in that. And Representative I, yeah, good. I, I would just add, uh, John and I served together on the Energy and Commerce Committee. And although this HR1 is not going to be the vehicles that's the most bipartisan, I do anticipate, um, and I can just speak, I'm the chair of the uh, new Democratic coalition. And we just yesterday had speakers at our luncheon talking about permitting reform. And John's absolutely right. We won't achieve our goals toward reducing carbon pollution um, and limiting the effects of climate change uh, without some type of permitting reform. We're particularly focused on transmission, energy transmission, because as um, with all these electric vehicles, um, with choices on heat pumps in, in homes, um, we're going to have more emphasis on electricity. And that hopefully will come from clean energy sources, but we're going to require miles and miles of new transmission. And that's often um, under the current uh, scheme, very challenging, takes a long time for permitting. So this is an area that I think John and I and our colleagues on both sides of the aisle can be working on together this session. You know, we're in a divided government. We have a Republican Speaker of the House. We have a Democratic Senate President. We have a Democratic President. And in order to move forward this session, we really do need to work together. And what we know about our change in climate is that we have no time to waste. So now's a good time. And if it's skiing that brings us together and representing um, our ski sector and our states, um, we have members all across the country that are willing to join us. And I look forward to working with John and our colleagues across the aisle. I have a question from the audience. Um, Congressman Curtis, uh, John Bosel of California asks, what can the government do to help lower greenhouse gas emissions associated with ski resort operations, including the transportation of customers to the resort? So is there a role for ski resorts to lower their greenhouse gas emissions? So I think this is, a, John, thank you for the question. I think it's an important question. First of all, let me say, there is a role for all of us in everything from carpooling to you know uh, reducing our vehicle trips to i mean every single one of us has a role but i think one of the things to keep in mind is look we have limited resources we need to be we need to start talking about how much we're paying to reduce a ton of carbon so hypothetically if a ski resort could uh, change their operations and to reduce uh, carbon but it costs them a thousand dollars per ton to re reduce that ton of carbon uh, wouldn't we be wiser to spend that on something that's $100 per ton to reduce carbon? Because 
the amount of carbon that, that we're going to need to reduce uh, to, to meet our goals is, is so substantial that we really can't be wasting resources. And I, I'd like to see us kind of take that a, a prob, problem, problematic approach to this, a practical approach to this, and say, look, let's let's apply our resources where they reduce the most carbon. Can I so just in there, yeah, Leanne, um, when I was out in John's district, uh, they have a real transportation issue uh, getting up to Alta, Snowbird, some of these uh, ski areas, ski resorts that are in tight canyons. And we were talking with the ski resorts about alternative transportation. One of the things um, that ski resorts can do, and many of them have made a significant uh, pledge toward reducing carbon emissions um, is electric buses. BAE, a company in my district, is making electric buses, and I've been on those buses. And not only will it reduce the number of skier trips of cars, vehicles coming in, um, but it also will um, eliminate emissions through using electric buses um, as long as the electricity for charging the buses is then um, solar or wind or another clean energy source. Um, we also saw out in Utah carpooling, uh, parking lots, uh, preparing people for going to the ski resort. So I think there's a lot of things that we can be doing to do a better job. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have another. Oh, I just can't accept this opportunity to give a shout out to, uh, to my ski resorts. Andy's done that, but I want to point out Park City, who, uh, if you go to the city of Park City, they run electric buses, but they've gone far deeper than that. And they've worked with their local utility to to move to 100% uh, clean energy that runs their city, and have been very aggressive um, working uh, with the state and others to do that. And I, I think they they and all my ski resorts deserve a pretty good shout out for their efforts. This is a question for both of you. Is there a fear among you individually and perhaps ski resort owners or even, you know, skiers and snowboarders, you know, the people who enjoy the recreation, that this industry won't be around in 30, 40, 50 years because of climate change? Uh, Congresswoman Castro, go first. Yeah. In some places, it will be much more challenging. I think you've seen some of those mid-Atlantic ski areas already adapting. They've probably, some of them, already switched over to golf and other, uh, what we consider summer activities. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been very fortunate is that the technology for artificial snowmaking has kept up over the last 20 years as the number of uh, skier days has been reduced. So the season has been about the same for us back east. But I know when you ski in the west now, you start to see that they have more and more artificial snowmaking uh, that they didn't used to have. So I think um, it is a concern. And I think one of the reasons that I like coming at it from this perspective is that you can engage the public, um, you can engage families to have these conversations. I know uh, some of these ski areas, I'll give Vale a shout out that's made a real commitment to this, has more and more educational programming signage around the resorts talking with people so that they can have these conversations about um, reuse, recycle, 
um, you know, thinking about the impact of our industry on the environment and on uh, the climate. And I think it's a great place to have those conversations and, you know, start to really make progress and have people get involved in these issues. Representative Curtis, what about you? I think um, your question points out um, why we're all involved in this, and that is this concept that it's totally unacceptable if my kids can't ski at these resorts in 50 years, or my grandkids or my great-grandkids can't, and this is my motivation. Um, and I, I want to make sure that they will be able to enjoy what I've enjoyed. Uh, clearly, we're seeing trends and uh, things that, that are problematic, but uh, all the more reason for us to engage and to find solutions. Great. And Leanne, I should say yeah. we should take a broader perspective. It's winter sports generally. I yeah. had the opportunity to go snowmobiling this weekend. And, um, you know, in a district like mine, uh, winter sports are what keep people going from December to April. Um, they enjoy being in the out of doors. They enjoy the activity, the exercise. And what I love is they enjoy being with their family. There aren't as many things nowadays to do with families. Uh, both men and women, girls and boys enjoy skiing and everyone can enjoy it together. And they're not staring at their screens. They're more likely to be excited watching each other, um, enjoying the activity and, and striving to do better and better. And it's something that I think families really do enjoy all across the country. Yeah, that's right. I know that there's some winter athletes who have been lobbying about this issue for a long time. They're worried about their livelihood as they see the weather change um, before them. Um, professional athletes, I should say. Um, just before we go, we don't have a lot of time left, but I do have to ask, um, there's some a news of the day question. Of course, there's been a horrible shooting at a school earlier this week in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I want to ask you both, let's start with Congressman Curtis. Is there anything that Congress should do about the repeat of um, mass shootings at schools? Well, I think it's important to point out there was a pretty substantial bill passed uh, last, uh, last year in Congress. And I, I point that out because, uh, you know, just passing laws doesn't change this. We've got to go deep in, into what happened. As I understand it, in this particular situation, there were there were flags that should have been caught. Why weren't they caught? Uh, how would we have caught them? What, what would have changed? Those these are questions that all my colleagues will be uh, discussing over the next few weeks. And um, I think it's clear that not all of our rules on the books are being enforced. And so the question is, is that the problem? Is it is is it the, that we need new laws? I don't think anybody has the answer here because I think if we did, we would have passed it, but it's certainly something that's on top of mind for everybody. Mm -hmm. And Representative Custer. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with John to the extent that we do need to enforce the laws on the books and some of the laws that we've changed about red flags and about why wasn't this individual uh, stopped from purchasing seven weapons, uh, knowing now that we do that uh, she was under supervision for mental health issues. 
Um, you know, I would go further than that. I think um, enough is enough, and certainly uh, representing my community that, by the way, is a strong Second Amendment community, but I don't have hunters in my district uh, begging me for assault weapons. I think people realize that these assault weapons are devastating, um, that the um, level of destruction in these mass shootings is so much greater um, and so I would support a ban on assault weapons. Great. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. We are out of time. I really appreciate this very lengthy and detailed conversation. Um, and I look forward to talking to you both soon. Thank Good. You. Thanks, Dan. Good to be with you, John. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.